So hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The Cotton Companion, which is a bi-weekly conversation among the editors and friends of Cotton Grower Magazine about all things cotton-related. My name is Beck Barnes, and I'm the editor of Cotton Grower Magazine, and I'm sitting here in our offices in lovely Cordova, Tennessee, talking to our magazine's online editor, Jim Stedman. So if you visit our website with any regularity, you'll know that as the online editor, Jim stays on top of all of the comings and goings uh, in our industry. Uh, so we're going to, our first segment today, we're going to dive into some of the, the most pressing news items of the day, and we're going to have Jim lead that topic of conversation because, again, I don't know of anyone better to discuss uh, those newsy type things that go on day to day in the cotton industry in America. So because this is our first episode, I feel like I should probably lay out the format uh, as we move forward in the podcast. Hopefully you're going to be listening along with us in the future and things will just sort of uh, uh, repeat from week to week and you'll pick up on what we're up to. So each week we're going to begin with a segment in which we discuss the most pressing news uh, items of the past week, as I just described. These are the types of topics that you'll likely be talking about with your friends and fellow farmers uh, around the coffee shops and the supply stores uh, in those mornings before you start getting after it on the farm. So from there, we want to hone in on some of the more broad, wide-ranging topics. Uh, these are the types of things you'll see featured uh, in the pages of a monthly edition of Cotton Grower Magazine. Today, for instance, in that second segment, we're going to be focusing on the topic uh, of drought, which happens to be the theme of our June issue, which should be hitting your mailboxes uh, about midway through the month of June. So finally, to round out each episode, this is something we're excited about. We want to bring you an interview with an industry expert on any number of hot-button topics. Today, we've conducted an interview with, our, with a good friend of the magazine, Dr. Don Shirley. As, uh, as you most likely know, Don is an extension economist with the University of Georgia and has been kind enough to share uh, his insight with us uh, about the cotton market and where we might be headed with these cotton prices. So, as you can see, there is plenty to get into today. Uh, again, we're excited about kicking off the Cotton Companion podcast. So, uh, we'd like to start off, of all places, uh, this being late May, we want to talk about cotton plantings. So, to jump into our news roundup, we're going to get into that first. Well, thanks, Beck, and, and hello to our audience. Uh, we're happy to have you with us for this uh, for this initial edition of, uh, of Cotton Companion. Uh, as Beck said, we're going to spend a little time looking at some of the news items or the more, more timely items impacting the market at this point. And the best place to start is probably with the USDA Crop Progress Report. Uh, the most latest numbers that we've looked at uh, are based on, uh, on May 17th, so a little over a week ago, almost a week ago at this point. And when you look at those numbers overall uh, among cotton producing states, they're showing that we're about 35% planted. Uh, that's still running about 11% behind the five-year average for the country. But you gotta dig, uh, dig a little bit deeper into the numbers and you'll see uh, a couple different stories emerging. In the Mid-South, the five states that make up the Mid-South, right now are about 72% planted. Uh, and that's ranging from 50% in Tennessee all the way up to 84% in Louisiana. And overall, for the Mid-South, they are running about 10 percentage points ahead of the five-year average. Uh, reason for this primarily is uh, the Mid-South got about a week and a half of really, really good planting weather. 
that one, unfortunately, was about two weeks ago. Uh, it's been a little bit wet since then, and it's sort of slowed things down. But uh, it allowed the, uh, the Mid-South to get off to a really good start. In the Southeast, uh, the Southeastern states are running behind just a little bit, which is no surprise that this year everybody's running a little bit behind. Uh, the problem there, as, uh, as we see or as we find out, is uh, it's still too wet in some areas for growers to spend a lot of time in the fields, and it's too dry in other areas. Uh, which is keeping growers, particularly in dry land situations, uh, from getting those planters out in the field and trying to plant into dust. So at this point, as of this moment, uh, growers are just kind of watching the skies, watching their uh, watching their growing their planting conditions, and making decisions on when they can get out in the field. In the southwest, we're about 17% planted. Uh, which is no surprise, those states usually run a little bit behind uh, the rest of the country. Uh, the big problem at this point as we look at it is Texas. Uh, Non-stop rains uh, have been plaguing the state uh, pretty much in delaying planting uh, and are really starting to cause some concerns for growers to uh, possibly walk away from acres that they may normally have put into, into cotton simply because, because of insurance deadlines and, uh, and simply just the dates on the calendar it may just be too late for the, some of those folks to get some cotton in the ground. Uh, we've seen numbers ranging from projected abandonment on cotton acres ranging anywhere from 25 to 65 percent depending on which part of the state you're in at this point. So and South Texas is the... Is South Texas, South and the coastal, the coastal areas of Texas down into the Rio Grande Valley seem to be the ones that are the wettest uh, and having the most problem at this point. That's the, that's the part of the country where cotton goes in the ground earlier than anywhere else. Yeah, uh, and also running into some, some planning windows as far as insurance is concerned Absolutely. as well. Some of those windows have already closed yeah. uh, for those folks. The windows in the uh, in the northern plains, uh, the, the more northern parts of the state, uh, the windows are still open and, and there's a good chance that those folks will get a good part of the crop planted, provided of course it stops raining. Yeah, which is such a zany thing to say about West Tech, which we'll get into, which we'll get into yes. in detail later, but I mean, my gosh, how, how crazy. <laughs> so, uh, that's where we are with cotton plantings, Jim. I know uh, another kind of newsy thing that's in the news this week is, uh, as we reported in a, I believe it was our April or May issue, memory fails, but we... It's our April issue. April issue, where we mm -hmm. spoke with Don Parker with the National Cotton Council, who was kind of their go-to guy on pollinator health. He's been sort of... Uh, uh, representing the cotton industry on Capitol Hill with these pressing issues regarding bee health. And uh, he told us a couple months ago that the White House was going to release, everyone was kind of holding their breath waiting on the White House to release uh, this plan uh, on what they were going to do on pollinator health and it just came out. So what, what do we know from, uh, from D.C.? What, we've, uh, what the White House finally issued this week, uh, and this is literally has been a year in the making, uh, they issued their uh, their strategy to promote the health of honeybees and other pollinators report. Uh, this has been based on a task force that the president uh, established last year. Uh, the uh, EPA and USDA have sort of been spearheading uh, the majority of the work on this task force. And now that the strategy's out, we can see where they're headed with it. Uh, they sort of have three goals that they outlined this week. Uh, the first one is to, to uh, reduce honeybee colony losses to economically sustainable levels. And you can put your own definition of economically sustainable 
there for, you know, in, in your own mind at this point. Uh, second was to increase monarch butterfly numbers to help protect the annual migration. And third, to restore or enhance millions of acres of land for pollinators through combined public and private action. Uh, what that basically means is uh, uh, there's a couple things here. Uh, the, the government is basically saying they're going to, uh, to start constructing pollinator gardens at, uh, at federal buildings across the country, uh, as well as restoring millions of acres of federally managed land uh, and, similar, and looking for uh, similar actions on, on private lands. Uh, they have issued a set of pollinator-friendly best management practices uh, that will be used on the, uh, on the federal lands, and that information is also available to, uh, to the general public to look at and to work toward developing uh, their own pollinator gardens or other natural habitats. The other key interest, interesting thing in, in this initial report or, or initial strategy is this task force is going to work toward uh, a partnership action plan uh, that's going to coordinate the government's activities with a lot of the state, local industry, and other groups that have already been formed in different parts of the country, very similar to the, the uh, B task force or the pollinator task force uh, groups that have been established in Mississippi, Louisiana, and other parts of the South. Uh, what it's doing basically is it's, it's trying, the government is, is basically saying, work this out yourselves. Figure out the ways that beekeepers, agriculture, and uh, can work together to help sustain the pollinator or the bee, uh, bee activities and the uh, in health, and uh, and then we'll do what we can to help you in terms of increasing habitats and things like that. Yeah, I know uh, when we spoke with Don a couple months back, I actually spoke to him during uh, the NCC annual meeting here at the Peabody here in Memphis. And he was telling me basically what happens is these beekeepers, uh, commercial beekeepers, they don't have the land to sustain these large hives that they depend upon. So they, so what happens is they approach farmers, a lot of times in South Georgia, I know I was in uh, the Missouri Boot Hill this past weekend, went up to do some fishing, there's beehives all out in these fields uh, on the left and right up there. And they're approaching farmers, say, hey, help me out, I need to use your land, it's mutually beneficial here, you know, uh, I won't be bothering you, you know, let's work together. So then when you start having these uh, population declines that we have seen over the past decade or so that have really come to the forefront and everyone's up in arms and maybe rightfully so, you know, how do we stop this? What's going on with our bees? Well, there are certain environmental types who say, well, it's these pesticides that farmers are using, which is a total, you know, from the farmer's sake, they've reached, they, they, out of the goodness of their heart, they're allowing these beekeepers to use their land and suddenly they're being blamed for, you know, the, the, these pesticides that are being used on their farm. So you talk to Don Parker about this. Again, he's probably the best source in the cotton industry to go to about pollinator health. And he was telling me, best case scenario, when this uh, report ca came about from the Obama administration, he said he was calling in each of the departments under his administration and asking each of them individually, uh, what can you do to help pollinator health? And from agriculture standpoint, the best part about that is when you're talking about departments like the Department of Defense or, or others who you wouldn't think would have any sort of say in this bee issue. Well, actually the Department of Defense, uh, excuse me, the Department of Defense 
has humongous tracts of land that they could make available for both commercial bee use and uh, wild bee habitat. And it sounds like that's what happened. They've allocated all these large tracts of land. And so, you know, the best way for there not to be an issue, be it with pesticides, you know, neonics have come under fire on this issue. Get those bees off of the farm and get them uh, onto these unused tracts of land where there aren't any pesticide use going on out there. And uh, so it seems like to me, I guess this is a very long-winded way of asking you, Jim, <laughs> that's just what we wanted, is it not? I think that's pretty much what we wanted because the one thing is it, that you alluded to that is not in the report is any mention of pesticides and, and, uh, and their impact on, on colonies and specifically the, uh, the neonicotinoids. Uh, that, I think, tells, says a whole lot about uh, folks looking at the science behind it rather than the emotion uh, attached to it. We know there have been problems uh, over in Europe. Uh, there have been some bans on the neonicotinoids uh, for some crops simply because of, uh, you know, of concerns over, over pollinator health. Uh, and certainly as soon as this, uh, this report was issued earlier this week, uh, several of the environmental groups and, uh, and conservation groups that have been very active in trying to get uh, a ban or a restriction on these products uh, voiced their displeasure. Uh, obviously, it's not it's it's an issue that's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, this is a pretty good first step, uh, and I think uh, you know yeah it's a, it was a year in the making, uh, but it was a year of thoughtful thoughtful process, and uh, and we'll see what happens at this point moving forward. Very good, very cool. So. Uh, Moving right along, again, pollinator health is one of the topics that we tackle under what we call our common thread umbrella, which is one of these issues that are going to be impacting uh, cotton for a long time to come. Our industry, our ability to farm cotton, uh, you know, this is an issue that's not going to go away. You know, there is the potential for regulation. It's one of these things that the National Cotton Council does ginormously uh, important work. Uh, to protect the interest of cotton when it comes to Washington, D.C. and regulation. Anyhow, we will continue to talk about it. We could devote a whole, this entire podcast to it if we really wanted to. And but, we may in the future. And, and, yeah, we very <laughs> well may, yeah. So uh, it is something that we find, you know, on a personal note, it's something that I find interesting. It's, it, it is a, uh, uh, a front line of modern agriculture and the challenges that agriculture faces uh, in today's environment. So, with that rambling closure of it, to get out of the pollinator health issue, I want to do move right along. Again, this is, we're recording in late May, uh, and weed control is uh, on the forefront of many, of many of y'all's farms as you're getting out there to plant at this time. So, uh, Jim, what's going on with weed control? Well, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on weed control, uh, other than to say it's been a mixed bag uh, at this point moving through the season. Uh, when you step back and look at, at what uh, what growers have had to deal with, deal with in terms of weather and planting conditions, uh, everything ran a little bit late. Uh, wet spring in most areas, uh, some cool temperatures. Uh, growers were not able in uh, in many areas to get out and do a lot of the burn down and, and pre-emerge residual treatments that they would have liked to have, uh, have gotten out. Uh, and some of those materials then, once they did get out, uh, you ran into a situation where uh, the rains 
backed away for about a week and a half, allowed growers to get in and plant. Uh, and there was some concern over whether there was going to be enough moisture quick enough to actually activate some of those herbicide materials uh, to help with, uh, help with the emerging weeds, especially with the uh, palmer amaranth pigweed. Uh, fortunately, in most areas, they did get some rain. Uh, we got most of those, those herbicides activated. Uh, and then as you look into other areas, particularly again, taking a, casting an eye down to Texas, uh, that really, really discovered how bad the herbicide resistance issue could be last year. Uh, they're really starting to see it in certain areas of eastern Texas where, where cotton is already in the ground. They've had a lot of moisture. Uh, and, uh, and some of the early reports that we're seeing out of Texas, particularly in the last week, are saying that uh, the weeds are really coming on strong. Uh, it's going to take a real concerted effort uh, for growers to keep those under control. Uh, we do have, for the first time this year, several cotton varieties from several companies uh, that will allow uh, applications of glyphosate and glufosinate or Liberty over the top uh, in a planned program. And my guess is that growers are anxious to try that out in, uh, in a big way this year. And just sort of looking at that note uh, on an isolated incident and just one thing for the cotton market to kind of keep an eye on, uh, this week was the first commercial sale of, uh, of the Enlist Duo herbicide from Dow AgriSciences. This is their new herbicide product, uh, what they call with their Colex-D technology that basically is based off of 2,4-D. Uh, it is in restricted use or controlled use this year, a very small introduction uh, in the Midwest in corn and in parts of the Midwest and parts of the South in soybeans this year. Uh, but what it means is that now there is another tool commercially available to use. Cotton has always been on the radar screen uh, for Enlist technology uh, beginning in 2016. We haven't heard any change in, in those plans at all. So it's, a, it's probably a good year to just kind of sit back, watch and see how this new technology that, uh, that will potentially be available for, for the cotton markets next year, see how well it works in some of the other markets. As, uh, as we move through 2015. No doubt, yeah, and I know that those guys at Dow Agri-Sciences that we talked to are excited. I mean, this is another <clears throat> step in the in the right direction for those guys. They're excited about bringing this, this product to the cotton market for sure. So that ought to just about do it for our news items for today. We want to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will be uh, discussing one of the zanier uh, theme issues we've ever gone to press with, uh, the topic of drought, as many of you have your mud, mud boots on out there in the far west, or rather the southwest. So we will be back with you briefly. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. 
in joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Okay, for, for our next segment here uh, on the inaugural Cotton Companion, we want to discuss uh, a topic that that we have been thinking about for months to uh, dedicate our June issue to. We get into the summer months and we get to have a little more liberty editorial license with what uh, topics we want to cover. Uh, and so for months now we have decided that we wanted to do something on the drought, this thing that had been plaguing the Southwest for five years. Uh, California was having the worst uh, drought situation uh, in decades there, and we'll get into certainly the, the numbers and the statistics here shortly, but uh, I want to talk to you a little about the timing. So when we are, uh, we are into production on a magazine about a month in advance of when it's going to actually appear in your mailboxes, in some instances a month and a half in advance of when it will appear, appear in your mailboxes. So it's early May, and Jim and I are furiously, uh, you know, typing this issue out, getting it to the printer. You know, we have print deadlines. Uh, we don't have a difficult job, but we do about once a month run into a deadline that that can be a little stressful. So you know, we're we're tying up our loose ends. We're talking to all of the experts on drought in the country. I uh, call up Bob Glott in West Texas. Uh, must have been about May seven, May eight. I can't recall exactly the date. And uh, he answers the phone and jokingly tells me that he uh, boated into the office that morning. And I'm kind of scratching my head. And sure enough, uh, check I'm checking. We follow a lot of the uh, papers and the and weather services out there in uh, in Texas on Twitter. And I checked Twitter that morning, and sure enough, you guys are having a foot of uh, ten inches of rainfall in some spots there south of Lubbock. And so, you know. Uh, I'm just kind of left scratching my head. Wouldn't you know it? I've just sent this uh, issue to the printer that has, you know, the word drought writ large uh, on the cover there. And uh, sure enough, two weeks later, I, I fly out to uh, Santa Barbara, California, a couple hours north of LA to cover the American Sh Cotton Shippers Conference. And I'm driving back uh, a couple days later, two hours south to LA to fly out. And uh, sure enough, gully wash settles in there over Southern California and I am uh, I mean it's coming down it wasn't raining hard for long but it was raining hard enough that I considered pulling over to the side of the road at one point I mean it was coming down in sheets and it was just one of those instances where you know I'm just shaking my head I mean everywhere <laughs> everywhere got this rain as soon as we decide to devote this issue to the drought so uh, of course, we were happy to see it. We know that, that the water levels need replenishing uh, in both of those regions, uh, the southwest and the far west. So, can only kind of laugh and, and scratch your head at the timing of this issue. But, we're happy for y'all. We know you need it. We know that in, certainly in the southwest, it's, it's kind of, you guys are having to worry about your planting window and you're trying to hurry up and plant. Now it's too wet out there, but we're, we're glad for you nonetheless. Um, this issue of drought has been something that you guys in West Texas uh, have struggled with for, I want to say, five years now. Five years. And, you know, it's it's one of those things in the, in the Southeast, in the Mid-South. You know, I think it was back in 2011, the Mid-South had this flood, or the Delta, the river counties had this flooding going on in the spring around planting time in the Mid-South. 
and you had fields that had a foot of water on in some spots and were so dry in the other half of the field that, that you're in full-blown drought. So it's an issue that can pop up from year to year in each of the four regions of the cotton belt is what I'm working towards there. And I know that uh, Jim and I kind of combined to write the cover story in this June issue just about the, the depth and how wide-ranging uh, the issues caused by this drought can be. And Jim, I know you did a lot of research on the problems, sort of the statistics of how bad the drought had right. been. Right. I spent some time talking with John Nielsen Gammon, uh, who is a professor of atmospheric sciences at Texas A&M, but he also serves as a Texas state climatologist. Uh, so obviously he's a man who keeps an eye on, uh, on all, th all things related to weather in the state. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, about the, since for most of Texas, most of this five-year drought has eased considerably, and I think the latest numbers you look at from the drought monitor, and I looked at them this morning, show that Texas now has gone from a period where, oh, about 88% of the state uh, showed up in exceptional drought, say, but in October of 2011, down to maybe 20 to 30% of the state now uh, rated in a drought condition. Now, obviously, that's wonderful news. Uh, the, the tragic part or the sad part is, you know, in some cases it's been too much, too quickly, uh, and, uh, and yes, it is causing some other issues. Uh, but the one thing that, uh, that Dr. Nielsen Gammon pointed out is it's always good to have this nice soil moisture going in. It's been a long time since that top layer of soil has had an adequate moisture supply to get in and get crops planted and get them up and, and moving. Um, the one thing he said, uh, I specifically recall him saying, is right now, even if it dried off, they don't have to worry so much about bad conditions happening quickly. Now, obviously, in Texas, uh, we all know that you know heat and summer heat can can go up to uh, some pretty extreme temperatures uh, for sustained periods of time. Uh, it would not take much to put parts of the state back into a little bit of a drought situation, but at the same time. He also told me that uh, Texas is right in the path, I mean just absolutely in the channel of the latest El Nino pattern, uh, which basically means there's a very good chance for the rest of this year and into winter that Texas is going to get, uh, and, and most of the southwest, is going to get uh, you know, some above normal rainfall. Uh, temperatures are probably going to be cooler because of that. Uh, which could also have some impact on, on growth. Uh, I think the one thing you can't say or the, or is uh, you kind of wish those, those same situations were happening in California, but that's just not happening at this point. Uh, California, as, uh, as I was told in working on this article, is now basically going through what Texas did in 2011-2012, which were the two, two worst years they had uh, in their drought. Uh, Drought Monitor is, is showing about 46% of California is currently struggling with exceptional drought. Uh, and, and it's a different beast out there. Uh, it's not a matter of rain falling and, and refilling rivers and streams and lakes and, and, and reservoirs. It's a matter of snowfall during the winter. Uh, you need to snowpack up in the, uh, in the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, that as it melts in the spring, that's a, that's a major water source for the state. Uh, it relies, you have uh, a lot of state regulations 
in terms of water use, uh, in terms of water rights uh, that date all the way, that date back, you know, a century or more uh, that, that the state has to deal with. Plus, they now have to deal with uh, certain situations surrounding endangered species that also impacts the way that they, they can distribute and use water in the state. Um, I talked with Gerald Nieper, who is the, uh, the president of CalCOT, one of the large cotton cooperatives out in Bakersfield. Uh, when you look at California from a cotton perspective this year, you're looking at about 155,000 total acres, and I think that breaks down to about 110,000 acres of Pima and about 45,000 of, of upland cotton. Uh, that's down substantially from last year. I think last year they may, got, may have gotten 200,000 acres, which was a huge drop from the year before, which was a drop from the year before. The trend in California in cotton has just not been, not been very good. Well, I know when, when they move out of cotton, you know, it's not like in the Mid-South or elsewhere where uh, we can go to soybeans and look at it right. again next year. I mean, they're planting a fruit tree or a vineyard or something. Exactly. They're, they're going to more permanent crops. Yeah at that point. And that's one thing they brought that, uh, that Gerald brought out. Uh, he says it's not what, uh, not, what, not what water is doing to cotton acres today. Uh, the big question out there and the thing that growers really have to struggle with is uh, how long can the cotton industry out there withstand the lower planting acreage without starting to damage or destroy the infrastructure, particularly in ginning uh, and other areas. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough situation, it really is. Uh, I looked at a, a, a water supply update report, uh, a newsletter that came out of California back uh, in early May, talked about uh, since October 2010, uh, California has had total inflows of a, just a, a little bit shy of 76 million acre feet of water into that Sacramento Delta area. Uh, and that's, again, over the past five years. But because of restrictions and problems with water distribution and regulations and things like that, of that 76 million, a little over 52 million of it, or about 69%, uh, basically went straight to the Pacific, uh, which is, is frustrating to, to growers and I'm sure frustrating to a lot of people in the state as that's water that could have been channeled or saved uh, in other ways. So it's... Uh, it's a tough situation in California at this point. Uh, they are not going to get the weather patterns that they hope for. Um, they may be very well looking at, uh, I think they're moving into year four of drought conditions. Uh, I think most people are, are kind of projecting that they've got about another year to go uh, at least on this. Uh, you know, it's a situation that bears watching. Also, the other thing, the other interesting part is, as we've talked about, you know, with all the rainfall in Texas uh, and everything, take a look over at the southeast. The southeast, particularly parts of Georgia, came through a pretty severe drought about four years ago. Uh, they're now out of those situations. Lakes have refilled. Rivers are flowing again. Uh, everything seems to be in great shape. But again, when you turn around and look at the latest drought report, uh, there are parts of south Georgia uh, particularly in areas where you have sandy soils that are starting to show up drought conditions again. Uh, again, it goes back to what we said. There are parts of, parts of the southeast that are too wet to plant. There are parts that are too dry to plant. Uh, so it's something to keep an eye on at this point. Uh, it's certainly 
it may ease in some areas, it may ebb and flow in others, but it's something that's not going to go away anytime soon. Absolutely, yeah, and, and again, just to underscore what you said, this is something that each of the four cotton growing regions in the U.S. deal with uh, from year to year. It could just rear its ugly head. So, so uh, the good news is, you know, you don't, we're, U.S. cotton is not sitting idly by and, uh, you know, woe is me, totally helpless against this uh, problem that Mother Nature poses uh, seemingly every other year in some spots. So, we, we, we went about this issue, this June issue, wanting to talk to some people to say, what can be done? You know, what are growers, how is the U.S. cotton industry fighting back? And it seemed like uh, the number one answer uh, on most people's lips is this issue of breeding from the seed companies to be able to tolerate, and I, I'm trying to be careful with which words I choose here because our, our Cotton breeder friends are always very careful uh, about using the word uh, tolerant or uh, resistant. So for our purposes, don't hold us to any scientific standard here, we'll say these, these new varieties that they're striving for are drought tolerant. They're able to produce more, they're able to hang on longer on very minimal uh, water. They have better water use efficiency. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's the term that these guys <laughs> use. And actually, to be sure, the terminology is important here. I mean, I, for my sake, I, I called uh, a guy who I alluded to earlier, Bob Glott. He's out there uh, in West Texas. He's got a research firm called Ag Research. And he tells me, you know, for years and years and years, the only people who are really doing water research uh, with uh, cotton varieties, with cotton breeding, were the extension guys. And uh, God bless them, those are some of the, the best friends of the magazine. I mean, we, we lean on them. They probably get tired of me calling them uh, at all of these universities. but. These extension guys were the only ones who were trying to figure out, you know, not only, uh, they weren't really aiming at drought tolerance in the early days, more along the lines of, you know, when should I water? How much should I water? You know, it seems like the, the most generally understood concept of irrigation is add water, get yield. And these guys were, you know, just testing to see if that's always the case. When should I be watering? When can I make the most efficient use of my water? And uh, suddenly, we get more competition among the seed companies in recent years, maybe over the past decade or so. And uh, Mr. Glad out there uh, with his research farm, he's got a very sophisticated research farm. He says around 05, around the mid middle of the aughts, uh, 05, 06, the seed companies start approaching and say, this is something we really want to look at and we don't even know the parameters of how we're measuring uh, water use of our varieties that we're producing. And uh, suddenly Bob Glott found himself in high demand out there. He says today he works with each of the major seed companies. If there's anybody who is wanting to make some noise in the West Texas cotton market, they are consulting with Bob Glott. He doesn't do all of their water research, but he does offer a very important uh, uh, tool to these guys, which is his, uh, his research capability, the sophistication of this farm. So anyhow, he tells me it took him till about 2009 to really get a grasp on what uh, the parameters that they wanted to use to determine whether or not a cotton variety was able to uh, make good use of its water. And, and one of the major sort of paradigm shifts that they moved towards over that time was the adoption of something called potential evapotranspiration. That is a long word and I hope I'm not butchering it. Potential evapotranspiration. 
as a parameter to gauge how much and how efficiently a variety is using what water it gets. And it's sort of standardized, uh, it's standardized the measurements. You, you guys have to understand this is an Ole Miss journalism major trying to uh, describe <laughs> these very uh, scientific uh, uh, data that this guy is gathering out there. But, but basically, PET, potential evapotranspiration, standardized the measurements that these guys were using. And he started testing all of these varieties out there at four levels of PET based on, you know, he's trying to get an understanding of real world conditions out there on your own farms. He says most people fall somewhere near one of these four levels. There was 0% PET or just rain fed, which is true dry land, 30% uh, PET, 60% PET, 90% PET. And uh, he's basically just gauging each of the varieties that these companies send to him based on those four uh, 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 parameters. So what you have here is two things are happening. Researchers are making a more sophisticated way of measuring how these varieties are using the water that you're able to give them. And the second thing is the seed companies are able to pour just bukus of money in research and development into selectively breeding these guys. This It goes back to the development of uh, uh, gene mapping, DNA mapping. I mean, I sometimes I feel like DNA mapping was sort of like uh, when you were little Mario and he found the mushroom and he morphed into like Big Mario, right? <laughs> right on Super Mario. This really boosted everything that these breeders could do. I mean, it gave them the most useful tool to be able to go back and to be able to make uh, crosses and breed these cotton varieties. It's why you see these yield boosts year over year. It's why they're suddenly you know, a plethora of cotton varieties that hit the market with any any number of characteristics, verticillium wilt tolerance, nematode resistance, you know, anything under the sun. And granted, there's always room for improvement, but haven't you noticed in the past, gosh, five years, the breadth of these varieties with all of these characteristics that are hitting the market? You can trace that back to uh, gene mapping, essentially. Um, Again, this is Ole Miss journalism trying to explain science to you. So uh, I'm sure that there is a breed. I just got done interviewing Mustafa McPherson, and I can imagine him critiquing me trying to explain DNA mapping to people. But um, but but knowing him, he would probably like your obscure Mario Kart yeah. uh, <laughs> reference too. Maybe so. Maybe so. So to steer us back to the water scenario, because of these because of these scientific advancements, they're able to produce these varieties that are able to hang on longer, they're able to produce more, they're more water use efficient. And uh, you do have better varieties today that are better capable of, more capable of handling droughty conditions than you had 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. There's no doubt about it. I'm sure you guys would agree with me out there. So if we're going to defeat drought, that is a number one uh, our best weapon against it is these guys the science being put into developing these varieties that are able to withstand it but there are also things that you can do on your own farm production practices that you can do i spoke with uh tennessee's new uh, extension cotton specialist tyson raper there at the university of tennessee he was telling me about uh, things like an apmometer which is basically a device to help you develop uh, potential evapotranspiration as a parameter on your own farm. Uh, again, it's about changing 
the way you are measuring how much water you're putting on your cotton. Uh, it, it helps you to quit from flying blind and gives you an idea of, hey, I made, if you start tracking it with these devices, you say, last year I put this amount on at this time, these are my conditions, and I got a lot of it out of it as far as plant health and ultimately yield output. So, uh, you know, ask, ask your extension guys about it. Ask your consultants about a nap monitor. Ask them about soil, uh, soil monitors. All of these tools are available to you to help you make the most efficient use of the water you've got on your farm. Uh, you know, you don't have to sit idly by. Okay, so, so Tyson Raper also mentioned soil, soil moisture sensors that can help you determine your water needs uh, when you want to op optimize the water uh, that you're putting on onto your farm. You know, a quote from Tyson uh, from our interview says, I think that these sensors have the ability to give us insight into that crop, soil, and water relationship, and I think it's going to help us maximize the amount of lint that we get from every acre inch of water. This is another great uh, sort of fringe benefit of putting this issue together as I found out what an acre inch was. I've never heard of that before. So the, uh, the idea, though, is for you guys to understand, you know, you, you can fight back. You do have options to make fun of the most, uh, to make rather the most of your water to get the most efficient use out of the water that you have on your farm. Uh, I would encourage you guys as uh, some of the more precision agricultural culture uh, focused extension folks out there would do the same. Be open-minded to some of these new products. Be open-minded to some of these precision advancements because they're there, especially when you're looking at 60 cents, uh, a 62 cent market as I think we hit today. Uh, you know, precision can help you out through a tough, tough year like that. So, uh, I do want to, Jim, unless you had anything to add on our drought story, I would like to end our discussion there. Again, this is one of these wide-ranging topics. It's, it's one of our common thread topics. We think this is going to be, this is an issue that's going to affect the sustainability of American cotton. I mean, 20 years from now, when you're looking, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, you're looking to pass your farm on to your children. Are they even going to want to deal with it? You know, are issues like drought, bee health, things of that nature, even going to be make it worth their while, or are they going to, you know, go go do something else um, with themselves? So we're going to leave that discussion there for today. And uh, when we come back, we want to bring you uh, an interview with someone, a very smart gentleman uh, with UGA Extension. Dr. Don Shirley, who's going to analyze some of the cotton market movement with us. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. 
In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Okay, so now I'd like to introduce uh, someone who has been a very good friend of Cotton Grower Magazine uh, here recently. This is UGA Extension Economist, Dr. Don Shirley. Uh, Don reached out to us several months back and offered to regularly share his market analysis with us, and it has really been a strong addition and a blessing for us uh, editorially because he offers some great insight into the cotton market, you know, it's been kind of a stagnant year, and uh, Don does a lot to explain what's really going on uh, on the global market that's impacting your bottom line uh, on your cotton farm. So we have languished in the 60 cents range. Uh, there are a lot of forces impacting uh, our world, and uh, we're happy that Dr. Shirley, who's a longtime veteran of, of cotton economics, is here to, help to share his expertise with us. Don, how are you doing over there? Back up just fine. Thank you very much. We need uh, we need some rain here in Georgia, but uh, overall things are still looking pretty good. Very good, very good, Don. Again, thank you for being here. I want to just kind of jump right in. Our most recent market analysis report we got from you uh, came in a week ago or so, and it was on the heels of these May USDA numbers that uh, the USDA published at that time. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about what that report said and what it signals for the cotton market? Sure, I'd be glad to. First of all, it's important to remember that the May report always is the first one that USDA puts out for the new crop year. And we don't know, based on actual farmer surveys and uh, field estimates, what is actually going on yet, obviously we're still planting the crop, but the May report gives us a projection for 2015, and it's important to realize that this is based on historical averages. Now, it is adjusted somewhat based on current conditions, but the numbers that you see there in that May report largely reflect historical averages on, for example, what percent of acres will be harvested as a, as a percentage of what was planted, uh, what will the yield be, and so those are historical uh, numbers, uh, but they are adjusted somewhat based on current conditions, and particularly in, in, in uh, Texas because of their moisture situation and the fact that uh, Texas is very important with regard to how much acres that they harvest as opposed to how much they plan. So those are historical numbers, but they are tweaked just a little bit based on this year's conditions. I see. And so uh, it seems like they're just kind of starting to get a grip on what uh, planted acres are going to be like this year uh, in the in the cotton belt. And I know that you know, up until today, we've got this, or, or, you know, the past week, we've got this massive flooding going on in Texas, which as we all know is the, the largest cotton producing region in the cotton belt. How do you see that uh, impacting overall acreage, or do you, can you tell at this point? Well, it is hard to tell, but uh, reports that we're getting, um, all of this rainfall, uh, number one, you don't know, first, first, first of all, you look down at the coastal bend, down at the Corpus Christi area, how is all this rainfall, rainfall impacting what is already planted? As y'all know, as our listeners know, 
Um, that that area is always among the first planted in the country. Uh, I haven't seen any reports that really suggest what the impact down there has been, but a lot of rain in Texas uh, down in that uh, uh, Houston and then further down into the coastal bend area, and also up in the uh, up in the high plains, up in the Panhandle area, reports that. Uh, uh, they're having a hard time, the growers are having a hard time getting the crop planted up there uh, because of excessive moisture. And what a 180 turnaround that we've had uh, up in that area this year compared to the past uh, three or four years when they've been suffering through a tremendous drought. So um, all of this may impact uh, how much cotton is planted. We won't know until the end of uh, June. USDA will come out with the first excellent of what's actually planted at the end of June, and that'll be based, based on a survey of growers as of around the first of June. So, um, I, you know, most reports seem to indicate that there will, that, I mean, farmers want to try to get the cotton crop in, but um, some acreage, um, not only in Texas, but in other parts of the belt as well, the Delta, uh, the Mid-South, uh, they get switched over uh, to other crops, particularly grain sorghum, perhaps corn, perhaps soybeans. I see. Now, I, I, we certainly hope that our friends there in Texas and, and certainly here in the Mid-South and, and the Southeast, everywhere are able to turn a crop and a good crop this year. If they don't, if we lose some more acreage, it kind of goes, to bring us back to this May USDA report, it kind of goes. Uh, dovetails with what this report is saying, which is that for the first time, which you noted in your analysis, for the first time in about five years now, use is going to outpace production, it seems like, this year. Is that correct? Yes, and you know, anything that adversely affects uh, the acreage planted here in the U.S. and or the yield, uh, not to mention what go goes on over in foreign countries, but uh, look at it just from the standpoint of the U.S., uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next uh, month or so and, and when those June numbers come out. Uh, uh, there's beginning to be, and, and the market's not really reflecting it yet, uh, there's beginning to be a feel that uh, maybe that 9.55 number that was uh, given back in March, the so-called planning intentions number, Maybe that number is going to end up to be uh, maybe a quarter of a million acres, maybe a little more than that, uh, over uh, what would actually be planted. Uh, and so if if that happens, and also, uh, back another thing that we've got coming up, crop insurance deadlines, uh, uh, crop insurance uh, final planting dates are going to be fast approaching. and. Uh, for some parts around the country, the final planting date on cotton to get full insurance coverage is about the end of May. So we're coming up on that. And um, once you pass that planting, that final planting date on crop insurance for full coverage, um, some farmers may decide, I mean, that may be enough incentive or for another reason for them to switch over to another crop. So. Um, a lot really depends on what happens here this uh, final week or so in May in terms of farmers making uh, final decisions about what to plan and the crop insurance deadline will come into that as well. I see. You know, I, I, 
this makes me think of one of the first interviews I did when I came on at Cotton Grower Magazine back in 08 or 09. I went down back home to Inverness, Mississippi and interviewed Bill Kennedy, who many of the folks with Southern Cotton Jenners will know. And if you recall, 2009 was the year that, that the U.S. drew back acreage big time. And, and I was down there interviewing him uh, as a rep representative. He ran Duncan Gin down there. And I was asking him about this drawback of acres and maybe it would help with price. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said back then in 09, it seems like what we've learned is that what we do with acreage doesn't really impact the world price anymore. And it was kind of, you know, it was kind of said with a sigh, kind of like a, uh, in resignation. Uh, can U.S. producers expect any drawback of acreage to here to offer price relief for what they do get planted? short on time so I want to toss you one last one before we let you go and I'm gonna ask you to really put on your your swami hat here uh, it looks like we're at we're back in 64 to 65 cent range today which you were telling me earlier uh, you know can you tell me briefly why we're trending right there in the mid 60s now and do you think that these growers will see 70 cent cotton again before the year's out I, I told growers at winter meetings this year to wait on 70 cents. I'm gonna stick to my guns with that. Uh, and the reason that I do that is simply because that's really the opportunity cost. I mean, if, if we sit back and do nothing, the combination of the loan and or cash price plus an LDP or marketing loan gain, at least here in the Southeast where our basis is very good, uh, our 
total money should end up to be in the upper 60s to around 70 cents. So, um, you know, I've been telling growers to kind of hold off, wait till December gets to 70. Can we get there? I think if the acreage comes in shorter than we think at the end of June, and still if we have some problems with yield and if our exports, if China, regardless of what they say, if our exports this coming year are good, then um, I do think we stand a chance to get up in the 70 cents range. And um, so that's, I'm kind of advising growers to kind of sit back and wait on that. Is it risky? Absolutely. But again, you have to recognize what your opportunity costs are, and you have to fully understand how the marketing loan works and where your total money's coming. Very good. Man, we appreciate you uh, sharing your insight with us today, uh, Don, and, and we sure hope that uh, you will continue to be willing to do so. We'd love to have you back on the podcast uh, pretty regularly if you'd, if you'd be willing to talk to us. So, uh, again, we thank you very much, and we hope that you continue to do well over there in Tipton. Maybe I'll get a rain here soon. Beck, I want to thank you and uh, thank Cotton Grower for what y'all do for the growers and for the industry. I'm happy to and uh, I hope this is beneficial to our growers out there. It certainly was. Thank you, sir. Okay, Ben. Thank you so much. All right. So we do want to, again, thank Dr. Shirley. And uh, that will just about do it for this, the first and what we hope is many episodes of The Cotton Companion, a podcast produced by the editors of Cotton Grower Magazine. Uh, you can read uh, much more from Dr. Shirley online at cottongrower.com. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please go ahead and subscribe to our channel uh, and leave us a rating to let us know what you think of our pod. Uh, also, please make sure to follow us on social media if you're not already. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter and on Facebook. You can find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Uh, you can find your latest issue, the June edition, hitting mailboxes around the middle of the month. And we want to thank you sincerely for joining us today. A special thanks to the Drive-By Truckers for allowing us to use their wonderful song in our introduction. You can find the song Sinkhole on their acclaimed album, Decoration Day. Thanks are also due to musical advisor Austin Marshall of Play It Again Publishing in Nashville, Tennessee for allowing us to use his app, his as yet unreleased single, God Made a Farmer. This podcast is produced by Mark Antonelli of Maestro Media Worldwide. My name is Beck Barnes, and I'll be back here with you in two weeks on the next episode of Cotton Companion. For now, on behalf of my own Cotton Companion, Jim Stebman, we say fairly well and the best of luck to you and your farm.